Morning, all. As many of you know, as Jason just mentioned, we uh, finished just last Sunday a series on what the Bible says about reconciliation. And that series was not limited to, you know, racial reconciliation, but it included it as one of the implications of what it means to preach and live the gospel that we is at the center of our ministry. Last year at this time, after the death of George Floyd, I sat down with a friend of mine and a local Rochester pastor, Roger Breedlove, and had a conversation about this issue, particularly as it concerns the life of the church. And today, in, in, in that same uh, uh, spirit, I want to have another conversation a year later with another very well-respected voice on this issue of reconciliation, particularly as it concerns the city of Rochester, Dr. Walter Cooper. Dr. Walter Cooper is not only a celebrated, uh, if you've heard his name, a research scientist for many decades here in Rochester, but also was deeply involved, has deep involvement in civil rights in Rochester, especially uh, in the 20th century. But he is also, in addition to that, the namesake of our partner school, one of our partner schools, I should say, school number 10, um, the Dr. Walter Cooper Academy. So I'm, uh, I've gotten to know him. He lives actually um, in the city of Penfield, I should say the town of Penfield, just a couple of miles from our church. I've had the opportunity to sit in his living room and have a conversation with him, a couple conversations, and I believe, I hope, you will enjoy this conversation this morning. Born in Clarendon, PA, Dr. Walter Cooper moved to Rochester to attend the University of Rochester, where he was the first African-American to receive a PhD in chemistry. He worked as a research scientist for 30 years at the Eastman Kodak Company, where he earned a number of important patents, but also has a long involvement in civil rights in Rochester, where he was founding member of the Urban League, the Rochester chapter of the NAACP, Action for a Better Community, and was also the associate director of the Rochester Monroe County Anti-Poverty Program. He is also the namesake of the Rochester City School where we are sitting today for this interview, school number 10, the Dr. Walter Cooper Academy. Uh, Dr. Cooper, welcome. It's great to be with you here today. Thank you, Bob. We concluded a seven week series on reconciliation talking both about you know, God's reconciling work with us, you know, God in, in humanity, and how that should impact how our work in reconciling with other people in the community. You know, love God, love your neighbor. But throughout that series, I did never touch on one of the most important passages, I suppose, on this subject, which is the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. When, and you know, this, this great story, this two, for 2,000 years, people have been talking about this story as a way not only to talk about going the extra mile for people um, who are in need and trouble, but it's also one about, that talks about the important role of racial prejudice in doing this kind of work uh, in any culture. So I wanna ask you with that in mind, about the year that just was. We have lived in the last year or two, 2020 uh, and now 2021. It's been one of the most unprecedented years when we talk about you know, the racial tension um, in our society. And I wonder, what do you think after, why is it, I should say, after all of the great advancements of uh, the past, let's say even in the work that you were a part of in the last century, why is this uh, still a problem, so much of a problem in our in our culture today. 
the story of the Good Samaritan is often lost. When I was in first grade in 1934, it was at the height of the Depression, but I saw within my community of Clareton, Pennsylvania, where I live, Good Samaritans. Uh, for example, coming from a family with uh, seven children and a father who worked part-time in a coal mine and a steel mill, and a mother who had nine years of education but was at home, of course, with uh, the seven children, the family exhibited the Good Samaritan because as poor as we were, there were at times we fed not only blacks but also whites because you see a need and you try to meet that need if, it, if it's humanly possible. Mm. And that was the attitude of my parents. And so uh, I think the parents, in terms of the lessons and the functions which uh, operate within their own lives, sets a pattern for children, which I think children can carry throughout their lives. I know for my personal self, uh, I will never forget the lessons conveyed to me by my parents mm. and the examples they set in terms of their interactions with people. Mm. So are, is what you're saying by that, that maybe today, for whatever sets of reasons, that kind of behavior, let's call it good Samaritan behavior, is less um, common? That's true. It's less common. You, uh, you see it... Uh, in the way our communities uh, operate nowadays, uh, uh, the introduction of uh, what I would call uh, community-operated agencies and so forth is an inadequate substitute for the daily interactions between human beings mm. in a community. Mm. Uh, the the social service agencies uh, uh, they are. Uh, distance when it comes to making an impact on the daily functions of people. Mm. And you have to look for, at least I do, for the interaction uh, in neighborhoods of people. How do they come together? How do they respond to one another? How do they respond to tragedy within a community? Mm. And I saw it as a youngster I was fortunate I lived in a multi-ethnic neighborhood. It was not all black. Uh, we had neighbors from essentially all over the world. And uh, there was kind of a human understanding that uh, we would acknowledge the humanity of everyone, large, small, poor, or relatively well-off. Now, one thing you taught me, or at least in our few conversations, not only about the you know African-American experience, but anybody's experience, is the importance of knowing your history. And I just wondered, for someone who has lived a long history so far, you're someone who was not only alive in the 1960s, let's say, but was actively engaged in civil rights in the 1960s. For those of us who may not know, who were the greatest thinkers, let's say, and leaders in the in the civil rights movement, and what was their greatest contribution to the work um, of a, of the 20th century? Well, I had the opportunity 
of uh, meeting uh, a fair number of the civil rights, human rights uh, leaders of the, the late 50s and early 60s, including uh, Martin Luther King and uh, Thurgood Marshall, Malcolm X, and A. Philip Randolph, C.T. Vivian. Well, Thurgood Marshall was very interesting because he was the young attorney who, in working with the Legal Defense Fund of the NAACP in 1932, took the famous uh, uh, Thomas Hogate case. Well, Thomas Hogate was a graduate of North Carolina uh, College, uh, which was an all-black institution. And, but he was interested in becoming a pharmacist. And within the state of North Carolina, there was no institution of higher learning operated under the aegis of a, of a black school uh, that provided a program in pharmacy. So he took the, had the courage to apply to the University of North Carolina. So that became a, a, a court case and the NAACP with young Thurgood Marshall lost that case because the president of the all-black institution, North Carolina College, refused to send the grades of Thomas Cocutt to uh, the University of North Carolina. Mm. So that was tragic uh, and actually a delay in the integration of, uh, of uh, African-American students at the graduate school level into institutions which were fundamentally white. Mm. And this was the 1950s? Yeah. yeah. And in 1954, it led to the Supreme Court decision of uh, getting rid of uh, segregation in public, public education. Thurgood Marshall was very interesting because he, he illustrated dramatically uh, his opposition to uh, uh, the be patient, go slow on civil rights. In fact, uh, at a reception which I attended where Thurgood Marshall was featured, uh, he said, uh, when the society tells me to be patient, he said, if, if you've invited me to breakfast or lunch and it's a little late, I can be patient. And even for dinner, if you're a little late, I can be patient about that. But if a man has his hands around my throat choking me to death, don't ask me to be patient. Right. Mm -hmm. How about Malcolm X? Malcolm X. I've kind of... You're smiling because I know you, you mentioned you were I used friend. to call him Big Red. Big Red, how come? Because his, he had reddish-brown hair. Oh. And uh, to me, he had a very keen mind. I think the, our society, with respect to people like uh, Malcolm X, uh, you lose uh, uh, the potential of, a, an in, of an individual who can make uh, uh, solid contributions to the overall mm -hmm. health and knowledge of this society. Mm -hmm. Uh, Malcolm X had a penetrating mind, a very analytical approach to situations. 
And I have a, I have a tape of his last uh, talk that he gave in Rochester mm. about a week before he was assassinated. Wow. And we have that set up because we realize that we have to fight against the evils of a society that has failed to produce brotherhood for every member of that society. This in no way means that we're anti-white, anti-blue, anti-green, or anti-yellow. We're anti-wrong. We're anti-discrimination. We're anti-segregation. We're against anybody who wants to practice some form of segregation or discrimination against us because we don't happen to be a color that's acceptable to you. And that was, uh, it was kind of sobering for me to go back and play his last uh, talk that he gave in Rochester. Mm. He had taken his Hajj, uh, that is his visit to Mecca. Right. And he came back a kind of a different person. Mm. No rantings against uh, the white majority, nothing like that, but an understanding of the unity of uh, humanity. So there's a lot of talk today, uh, Dr. Cooper, about unfair systems or a popular term that's been at least popularized a lot in the last year and a half, systemic racism, systemic poverty. And this is now many years after the 60s and 70s when a lot of this legislation took place. Is it still important in your um, thinking to use that term to talk about systems or systemic racism when you, when we think about the um, injustice of, um, let's say, blacks or uh, minorities in America today? My position has always been that uh, before you can cry racism, you, you have to uh, acquire those characteristics which would provide you with a, uh, a, a, a profession or a way of living which uh, provide you with a, another level of existence, another level of income before you can cry that uh, it's racism. For example, uh, in 1950, when graduating from Washington and Jefferson College, uh, I had planned to uh, enter the workforce to aid and assist uh, my parents and the my siblings. I was uh, the third oldest out of eight children, and there were still a fair number of my siblings, my sisters and brothers at home. So on graduation from Washington and Jefferson College, a recruiter came from DuPont Corporation. He had seen my resume and all of my activities uh, at the college, and but when he, whenever he saw me, he was surprised uh, to see that I was of pigmentation different from his. Mm. So uh, he caught himself and he said, uh, "You had a you had a wonderful four years at this institution. A member of Chi Epsilon Mu, the Chemistry Honorary Society, minored in physics and mathematics, a star football player, and." also an officer of your class. And then he looked me in the eyes and he said, but we do not hire blacks in our research facility in Wilmington, Delaware. Mm -hmm. So I kindly looked him in the eyes and I said, uh, you folks at DuPont are making a serious mistake. And I walked out. Mm -hmm. 
But I learned that uh, people's attitudes, well, the corporate attitude at that time, uh, was not sufficiently strong to deter me from what I wanted to do as a human being. But let me just try to summarize what I think you just said um, to the larger question about, you know, um, you know, racism, systemic racism. My sense, what I'm hearing you say is racism is real. Um, of course, I think most would say that in our culture, even today, 2021, institutions uh, of various kinds are not free of racism, but it doesn't mitigate personal responsibility, knowing your personal history yeah. and not allowing, um, in some cases, like in your case, the, the DuPont company to say, um, no, to keep you from finding uh, other ways to achieve agency in your life. Right. One thing you talked to me about, too, in our previous conversations is the family. How important is the role of the family in it helping to um, advance even the, the today the African-American uh, community? Total. Totally. I don't care how poor you are, you have the opportunity to change the direction of your life through the educational process. That was uh, generations of African-Americans have done that. That's, that was the situation in my own family. As I often joke uh, that uh, the, the family is the primary determinant of educational achievement. Uh, and that uh, places no limit on the economic circumstances of the family. Uh, we were very poor, but we had a f fundamental belief that our lives would be altered for the better if we received an education. So in the household, my mother, who had nine years of education, uh, was a constant reader. We always had a daily newspaper and the weekly Pittsburgh Courier, which was an all-black newspaper. We discussed national and international issues. Mm -hmm. My oldest sister, Irma, uh, was a member of the Book of the Month Club as, er as early as the late 1930s. And I can still remember one of the books she received. It was Vicki Wong's Shanghai 37. We discussed uh, national and international issues within the family. Five, five sisters and one brother. Uh, my father did not, have a, did not have a day of education. Uh, he worked uh, 44 years hard labor, first as in the coal mines of Western Pennsylvania, then for U.S. Steel Corporation. Mm -hmm. But he was the provider uh, to the extent uh, of, uh, of his background in education. He conveyed to us the, uh, uh, the value of... Uh, hard work, and intensive hard work. Uh, in the household, uh, you went to school every day. It would take a near-death experience for you not to go to school. And your report card was carefully scrutinized. And if there was any item below B on your report card, uh, you were kind of confined to the house for a period of time. Uh, we even played school in, at home. 
My oldest, one of my older sisters, uh, Thelma, taught me how to read before I went to school. The school never had to teach me how to read. Well, I remember you said to me, maybe this is good to say, not just to people listening to us today, but um, in, in any community in Rochester, but even as we think of the parents of School 10, you said to me, the books shall set you free. <laughs> I love that. That's line. right. I, yeah. I tell the students that here. You know, I use some of the the jargon of the street. I said, it's not chefing and jiving and styling and profiling that frees you. It's the book that sets you free. Oh, wow. That's great. The knowledge in the, of the book. That's great. I, you mentioned growing up as a Baptist. Um, I know your your wife uh, introduced you to the Episcopal Church, and I know you later, you and your wife, Helen, um, founded a Presbyterian church, helped found a Presbyterian right. church here in Rochester. So, but I wonder all that taken into account um, and all the reading that you've done and the man, uh, the man that you've been uh, and the faith that you've experienced, what do you think of the message of Jesus? What do you make of the message of Jesus? Well, I, the message of Jesus as uh, understood by me uh, from my readings and the message which I think he conveys to the world is... Uh, don't allow the children to suffer. Suffer little ones not unto me. And conveys to the adult population the reciprocity of the humanity, the recognition of the reciprocity of the humanity of individuals as the starting point for any relationship you never make assumptions about people you always look for those human factors in the life of a person mm. whom you meet mm. so that what jesus was saying about children in his day not thinking so much like we think of people that are cute he's thinking of people that were the lowest on the on the okay. uh, importance okay. scale scale yeah. that that if jesus says in his um you know, shorthand, um, children are important to me, then people are important. Important, right. Yeah. Hmm. Um, well, here's what I'd like to end. We, we opened this time talking about the Good Samaritan and this great story, right? We, it's a shorthand for um, going the extra mile. It's, a, it's also, it talks about the challenges. You know, here we are thousands of years later uh, about a, a racial um, prejudice, which of course, it's a story about racial prejudice, mm -hmm. the Samaritan being a despised um, the most despised member of that community. But there's also another message here, which is a, a Jesus's not so subtle message to the priest and the Levite who, who walk by this half dead beat up man. Um, it's maybe a, a message of a challenge to, let's say the religious establishment of his day and to the church in our day of um, how we need to do more uh, perhaps, um, not only in loving the under, uh, underprivileged or people in general, but maybe even in the issue of race. So what advice do you have, Dr. Cooper, for me, for people like me and people like us who um, believe in the message of Jesus? How do we do a better job at um, the work of racial tension in our society today? I think it's very important that, uh, I'll put it in terms of people of goodwill, pe people of religious principles uh, not allow the politicians to speak and articulate 
the human condition uh, with your silence. I think you have to be somewhat aggressively involved in, 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 in explaining and actually celebrating the humanity of all of the individuals and the, of, of humanity. And uh, uh, if this, this country is going to live up to its expectations, we have to really change and be more of a, an example for the world to follow mm. with our riches, with our institutions. We have to have a be belief in the commonality of the human experience. Mm. Mm. And I think that's very important. Mm. It's pretty easy to criticize, but it's... Uh, more challenging to try to transform situations which are destructive to the young, to the middle age, mm. and to those of color. Yeah. Mm. Well, listen, how can we, I, this morning uh, or today, pray for you, Walter Cooper? How can I pray for you? How can our church say a prayer for you today? I, uh, that's a tough question. I need so I need so much in my life. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I think that uh, not to forego my commitment to humanity and to the hope that uh, eventually in this community we can indeed live as one family mm -hmm. under God. Amen. Mm. Well, let me pray. Can I pray with us? Sure. Pray with you. Our God and Father, I do thank you for the opportunity to sit here with uh, this man of honor and someone I've uh, been privileged to meet and even spend a little time with. It's a, it's a great um, privilege to be here today, and I thank you for his wisdom. And I pray, Lord, that I would receive it, that we would receive it, um, Lord, that we might do exactly uh, what was just mentioned, that we might become better citizens um, of this um, country and this in our communities, our families, that we might um, not only know the message of Jesus, uh, uh, but live it out and, and uh, um, give that um, dignity uh, to every person, whatever, uh, however old or young they are, whatever uh, the color of their skin or the level of their education, that we might truly demonstrate um, the gospel uh, in, in more uh, courageous ways um, than we have in the past. I thank you for, uh, for Dr. Cooper. I thank you for uh, the amazing work that he has done. Um, throughout his life, Lord, not only in, in civil rights, but in the advancements of science and, and many other things, education, including um, uh, the namesake where we sit today, School 10, that will um, uh, host students in the next uh, week uh, again and maybe um, be back in full, full uh, strength. Um, as a student body in the year ahead. And we just thank you for this school and we pray for its parents and really for the whole Rochester City School District. Lord, we pray for, for your blessings, for your grace, that the students would um, you know, come to know they're made in the image of God. They're, they're, 
they're loved by a God who knows them even if they don't know him. And Lord, that there are tremendous um, opportunities uh, right here for them and that um, you are here and, and the opportunities are here. And we just pray for them and we thank you. And again, thank you for Dr. Cooper. We pray for his health and for his continued um, strength and vision to serve in the ways that he does our city. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen, my brother. Thank you so much. Amen. Well, it's a great privilege not only to have sat with Dr. Cooper, but to see him sitting in our auditorium uh, this morning. Dr. Cooper, if you'd stand, we'd love to give you a hand. Thank you for being with us. You know, the many things that uh, he said in, his, uh, in that brief uh, time together that really stood out to me, I want to punctuate for us this morning as we think broader than this Sunday, is do not let the politicians speak for you, uh, church, when it comes to this issue and others. You know, um, we, we believe, I believe, I think our elders believe um, that this issue, let's call it racial tension, we call it racial reconciliation, is a discipleship issue, really. Every issue, challenge of our lives, if you're a Christian, is a discipleship issue. And when to, uh, to means a discipleship issue, means you have to start by not following the world's lead, but by discipling out what the world has to say very often, and discipling in what it is that God has to say. And this process is, doesn't happen overnight. It's a process that takes prayer. It's a process that takes ongoing learning, the word of God and beyond, and a process that ultimately takes, as, as Dr. Cooper said, courageous action, right, in our neighborhoods, in our community, in our city, and beyond. So that's what uh, uh, very important for us to keep in mind. One thing along that line, speaking of a discipleship issue, uh, I sat down over the last few months with Roger Breedlove, Dr. or Pastor Roger Breedlove, who I mentioned earlier. Some of you know him from our partner church in the city. And we created a, a, a study, a four-session study. Uh, we sat down and looked at really just four key New Testament passages and talked about them. What, is, what does the Bible have to say? How, do, how does these four passages in the New Testament, um, what does it have to say about the issue, let's say, of, of people, uh, challenges uh, with, among people, racial reconciliation, which was a, a subject in the New Testament, and what does it mean for us today, both the two of us, our churches, and as a community? So that study has was, just been completed. Pete has set up of 16 different groups that are going to pilot that study. Some of you may be involved in that starting in June, which will spill into July. That will be up, hung on our website, that study with some questions uh, for many of you to, uh, to take a look at, and we hope to encourage many more of us as we begin the program year in September to do that. So that's, uh, stay tuned for that discipleship resource. Now, where do we go from here? I just want to point towards the summer, starting next Sunday. Uh, we will begin a series, I will begin a series called Words to Live By. And this series, by me and some other voices, is really an opportunity. Here's what we're going to do. Take each Sunday one verse of scripture, let's call it a core truth, 
and share a little bit about what it means to live that core truth out, words to live by. How do you take the word of God and actually put it into practice in your life? So you're gonna hear from a number of voices. You'll hear from me a few times in this series, words to live by. We can disciple in and disciple out. And I look forward to um, being here with you for that. And what we will do, if those of you who are in the room, hope more and more of you join us back here on Sunday. We have, um, I took a look a couple months ago and picked out just a handful of verses, groups of verses, all from New Testament letters, just single verses. And we will hand those out, cards, at the end of every service over the next eight weeks. And just, you know, let the Spirit kind of lead the verse that you get as a challenge for you to live out in the week ahead this challenge uh, to live the word of God out in your life. And those of you watching us online, of course, will have a digital version of that as well. So watch this very brief teaser on that series and then have a great Memorial Day.